presentation. So I want to start by reading from a New York Times uh, article from back in 2018. Part of the article says, it's a widely known fact that a chicken with a severed head can still run, but a decapitated snake, it can still bite. Jeremy Sutcliffe, a 40-year-old Texas native, found this out the hard way. He and his wife, Jennifer, were outside doing yard work on the morning of May 27, 2018, when she discovered a four-foot-long, dirt-colored rattlesnake in their garden. She screamed. Him being a good husband, abandoned his lawnmower, ran over to her, grabbed a shovel, and with a single swing, just lopped off the snake's head. So, so far, so good. But after about 10 minutes, he decided he wanted to dispose of this severed snake head. And when he reached down, the snake, a western diamondback, sank its fangs into his hand and held on for about 30 seconds. His wife said that finally got the snake head pulled off. I called 911 and just started driving because I didn't know where to go exactly, what hospital carries antivenom. Well... Mr. Sutcliffe survived, but it took 26 doses of antivenom, and the article said that like two to four is average or normal, and four days in a medically induced coma for him to survive this snake bite. Uh, The article quotes a veterinarian from Texas A&M University that said that a bite from a decapitated snake can be even more deadly than a bite from a living one. His wife said just knowing a snake head could still bite after it dies would have prevented him from getting bit. And she said a lot of people at the hospital had no idea. There's not a lot of education out there about what you're supposed to do with a snake. And you say, you know, what does this exactly have to do with this message today? Well, I, I think there's a picture there of something that the Bible teaches of a, a spiritual principle. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he came, in his virgin birth, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, that he crushed the head of the serpent. We looked at a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews chapter 2, he destroyed the one who who had the power of death, the devil. That in Christ there's forgiveness of our sins. In Christ we can go to him and he'll help us uh, when we're tempted. Uh, Colossians 2.15 says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus defeated the devil and sin and death and hell and the grave. But even though Satan is defeated, he's still dangerous. That's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that until Jesus comes back, he's not completely bound. That um, his his power is broken, but he still has the power of lies and deceptions. If this wasn't true, the Bible would not say things like this, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I mean, if there wasn't still a battle here, if there still wasn't still a danger here, it wouldn't command us to do that. The next verse says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So even though Satan's ultimately defeated, we're still in a spiritual battle. If that weren't true, 
The Bible wouldn't say things like this. 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. So scripture there calls the devil our adversary. It says he's like a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. And it gives us some commands about being sober and vigilant and, and resisting him, being steadfast. Again, if, if he wasn't an enemy, if there wasn't a danger there, the Bible would not say things like that. So how can we resist him? How can we overcome temptation? Well, again, and in, in, in kind of going back through Luke 4, 1 through 13 and seeking how we can apply this, what I want to do this morning is to give you five strategies to help us to overcome temptation in our lives. And, and really, why is this so important? Well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so when we give in to sin, even if it looks good, even if it's enjoyable in, in, in the moment, and it probably will be, in the end, it's going to bring us destruction. It's going to cause us to miss out on what God really has for us. It's going to keep us from living out of and living out the victory that we have in Christ. So, let's look at these five strategies. Number one, I want us to see that if we're going to overcome temptation, it comes from living securely out of the identity of who we are in Christ. It comes from living securely out of the identity of who we are in Christ. Look at verse 3 and verse 9 here. Um, in verse 3, the devil said to, to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And then in verse 9, he's tempting again there in Jerusalem. He says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that if could really be translated since, that, that Satan knew that Jesus is the Son of God. That he wasn't, really wasn't denying that. He really wasn't trying to get Jesus to deny that. Really what he was trying to do is getting Jesus to misuse his position and his power as the Son of God outside of the will of God for his own benefit. That was really uh, the, the, the temptation here. And so it's the idea, if we don't really know and, and, and really live securely out of who we are in Christ, that we're going to be susceptible to temptation. We're going to end up misusing this. We're going to end up going in the wrong direction. You see, but because Jesus was secure in what his father said about him, he didn't succumb to the lie that his father wasn't taking care of him and turned the stone into bread. He didn't succumb to the lie that there's an easier way, a better way than the cross and take that shortcut. He didn't succumb to the lie and the twisting of Scripture that Jesus could you know, jump off a building and just presume that God uh, would, would take care of him. He didn't tempt the Lord in that way. But he did it because he knew that he was the son of the Father, that the Father loved him, that he loved the Father, the Father was pleased with him, and he wanted to please the Father. And the more that we know that, and the more security we have in that, the less susceptible that we are going to be to temptation. I mean, think about it. A, a lot of the dumb things we've done in our lives have been trying to impress other people, trying to fit in with other people, 
trying to feel like we're accepted or trying to make ourselves feel better uh, about ourselves or, you know, we end up going along with others because we don't want to be left out and we don't want to be lonely and, and those kind of things. But again, if we're secure, we're settled in who we are in Christ, we don't have to be sucked in uh, to those kind of things. And something I want you to think about here, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, the, the chapter and verse divisions aren't weren't in the original manuscripts uh, of Scripture. And really, this whole section from his baptism to the genealogy to this temptation narrative, it all fits together. And remember, in his baptism, the father said to Jesus, the son, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I want you to think about something. He said that before Jesus passed this test, not after. Listen, we don't become beloved sons and daughters of God because we pass certain tests or we do certain things. We can pass tests and do what we ought to do because we are beloved sons and daughters of God. One of the beautiful things about the gospel, it's the only thing in the world where our identity is, is received, not achieved. In, in, in anything else, you know, so much of our life is, is, again, worried about what people think about us or, you know, if I do this, if I succeed at this, if I make this much money, if I get this position, if I have this house, or, or whatever it may be, I'm something or I'm somebody. But when it's all said and done, I don't think that's ever ultimately going to satisfy us. True satisfaction, the way that we can truly live the life that God wants us to live, is knowing that we're in Christ we're children of God. We're accepted in the beloved. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We're complete in him who's the head of all principality and power. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. He's the one that fills us up and satisfies us on the inside apart from that. If we don't get what we think we ought to have or don't succeed in the way that we want to succeed or don't get the affirmation that we want, we're always going to be empty. Or I think sometimes what people find is they get what they want, they succeed, and it still feels empty. Because if we're not rooted and grounded in something that's ultimate and eternal and unchanging, I think earthly satisfaction is always fleeting. I just encourage us to think about this question. Where do we struggle, where do you struggle, with finding, looking for your identity in the wrong places? I think for me, it's in productivity or accomplishment. Like, if I'm getting a lot done, if I'm accomplishing a lot, uh, and there's nothing bad about that in and of itself, but you can take that, you know, in the, in the wrong way, and, and, and I think I can do that sometimes. But again, um, where's our identity? Who do we think that we are when we look in the mirror? How do we see ourselves? And if somebody rejects us, if somebody's upset with us, how do we see ourselves? Again, is it rooted and grounded in who we are in Christ? Are we trying to come up with some identity for ourselves? Are we believing what other people say about us? So I listened to a podcast interview the other day with a guy named Russ Taff. I don't know how many of you know who Russ Taffy is. I'm probably dating myself. But uh, I think, uh, you know, when I was growing up as a teenager 
and um, you know, listened to rock and roll, but then got introduced to contemporary Christian music for the first time. Uh, he was the first person, the Christian singer, that I got into his music. He was extremely talented, a, a great singer, very successful. You know, seemed like he did it as a ministry, would share the gospel uh, at, at his concerts and that kind of thing. But he's also shared openly about this, you know, through, through his healing and the, and the victory that he's gotten. But also, he was an alcoholic. And in this podcast interview, he was kind of telling his story. And he talked about he grew up in a home where his dad was a Pentecostal preacher, but his dad was also an alcoholic. And they just went through this cycle of he'd do good for a few months to be pastor in a church, then he'd just fall off the wagon, disappear, drunk, get fired from a church, then do better. And his whole childhood, pretty much, was this cycle. He said both of his parents were, were abusive to him. And he grew up being told, you're no good, you're not worth anything, you'll never amount to anything, you'll never accomplish anything, you'll never succeed. And, and, and he, he said that even as an adult, who in the time frame that he was talking about, he won four grand. Grammy Awards, seven uh, Dove Awards, you know, sold millions of records, sold out concert tours, had all this success, but the loop that was still playing in his head is you'll never amount to anything, you'll never succeed, you'll never be worth anything. But he said also at the same time, he didn't want to be his dad. So he was very scrupulous about not drinking, like even socially. You know, if I was playing golf with one of his buddies, they had a beer. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. They're out to a dinner with some friends. Somebody's having wine with their dinner. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take any chances on them. But he said him and his wife were in New York uh, visiting her brother. And they were staying somewhere, and there was beer in the refrigerator and ran out of anything else to drink, and it was hot. And he said, oh, I like one beer is not going to hurt me. And he said, I drank a beer. And that loop stopped playing in my head. And so I drank another one and another one. And he said, when I would drink, this loop would stop playing. And I'd feel better. And I wouldn't feel so bad about myself. And so it seemed like for the first few weeks and the first few months, this was actually helping him. That's the essence of temptation. It's like baiting a hook. It looks good. It promises something he can't, it can't deliver because he said in about six months, alcohol was destroying his life. And, you know, eventually he dealt with this, repented and got help and therapy and, you know, dealt with the, the, the trauma and all, all these different things that you need to do to overcome uh, something like this. But the point I'm making is this. The reason he was susceptible to that was because of the loop that was playing in his head. You know, because really what he got out of drinking was not just drinking a beer. Is He stopped thinking this for the moment. And what I'm saying is, if he had believed that he was beloved and accepted and a child of God like he does now, he'd have never gotten sucked into that in the first place. Our identity determines our activity. And so if we're going to overcome temptation and not be susceptible to Satan's lies, at the foundation, at the root of it, is knowing who we are and living securely out of our identity in Christ instead of what we or other people think about us. Number two, second strategy I want you to see here. This is just kind of a review. We spent a whole uh, message on this a few weeks ago. Is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How did Jesus face the devil? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, if we're going to deal with temptation, if the Son of God needed to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, you think me and you might need to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at what verses 1 and 2 say. It says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Jesus faced this in the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to face temptation, the Spirit empowers us to do that. Zechariah 4.6 says that it's not by might or by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. 1 John 4.4 says, Greater is he who's in you, talking about the Holy Spirit, than he who's in the world. The Spirit empowers us. Listen, we're not going to overcome temptation in our own flesh because we want to gratify uh, our flesh. But it's not just the Spirit gives power. The Spirit gives satisfaction. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, compared the Holy Spirit to fountains of living water flowing out of our hearts. Listen, if we're empty on the inside, we're going to look for something to fill that. Whether it's right or wrong, whether it's uh, stupid or wise, I mean, if we're empty, uh, we're, we're, we're going to look for things to fill it. I mean, here, here's what Proverbs 27, 7 says. Look, look, look at this verse. You, know, you turn to it in your Bible. Look at it on the screen, but read it for yourself. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Listen. There, there's things that we've done in our lives that, you know, in our rational minds, if anybody else was going to do it, we'd tell them they were stupid. Don't do it. Run away from it. But sometimes when we're empty, to fill a hole, to meet a need, to soothe a hurt, that's what that verse, we'll do things that, that just don't even make any sense to try to find something to fill us up on the inside. You see, when I think it, when it comes to sin, I, I think we gotta kind of look below the surface. You know, when when something is tempting to us, when we just we think, well, you know, it's because it looks like it's fun or enjoyable or pleasurable or whatever. And it probably is. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. You know, the Bible's an honest book, right? If it didn't look if it didn't look good, if it didn't look enjoyable, it probably wouldn't be a temptation, right? But Again, there's, I think there's always something underneath. Uh, one of my favorite bands is the band Need to Breathe. And uh, the, the lead singer, main songwriter, is a guy named Bear Reinhardt. And uh, one of their songs, the name of it is What I'm Here For. And I think the lyrics are very profound. And uh, I, I want to read the second verse uh, of the song. And I, I'm guessing that it's autobiographical because his dad was a pastor. And, and, and so it says this. He says, I spent my teens making out in the stairwell inside a church that went long because the spirit fell. I was really trying to mean something to someone, but at the time I just thought that it was fun. And I think that's so profound. Just thought, at the time I just thought it was fun, but really there's something deeper going on the inside. I was trying to mean something for someone. I was looking for something. I was looking for a relationship and intimacy, going about it in the wrong way. Listen, when we're empty on the inside... We're going to sin. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we have both the power and the satisfaction to overcome sin. Number three, though, we need to be aware of Satan's schemes. Again, he's defeated, but he's still dangerous, ultimately because he's deceptive. In Ephesians 6, talked about the wiles of the devil. We, we see two of Satan's schemes in this passage. One, he's looking for an opportune moment, and two... He's a liar. 
Jesus called him the father of lies. And so it's the idea that even though we're in Christ, we have this victory in Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the Word of God, if we're not on guard, if we're distracted, not focused on, on Christ, not where we need to be spiritually, Satan can sneak in, and it's, the Bible says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We can give him openings and let him sneak in and steal, kill, and destroy in our lives. So let me illustrate it to you this way. So uh, Luis, the, the director of the Boys and Girls Club in Honduras, he preached last Sunday, did a fantastic job. And um, in addition to telling us about how great Jesus is, in his sermon he also told us how great of a soccer player that he is. Um, and he is a really good soccer player, at, at least from my perspective. But, you know, uh, when, when we go to Honduras, they like us to play soccer with them. It's fun, it's a good bonding activity, and they're sinful, and they like to laugh at us because we're not any good at it. Um, you know, soccer is becoming a lot more popular in the United States today, but, uh, you know, it hasn't been that way in the past. And for a lot of us, even who grew up playing competitive sports, I mean, the only time I ever played it was like in PE in middle school. And so most of us, now, Angela Greenman, our treasurer, she played college soccer at Mars Hill, but she's the exception. Uh, most people at True Life, at least who have been on mission trips, are not very good at soccer, including me. It just seems backwards to me. Like when I play baseball or basketball, you know, I would use my feet to run, but besides that, everything else you're doing with your hands. And so like when we play soccer, I want to do stuff with my hands, but that's just a penalty. Uh, you know, it just doesn't seem natural to you know, be kicking stuff with your feet. But anyway, I'm not, I'm not good at soccer. Luis, is, he's, he's very skilled at it. Uh, of course, Luis is a, he's a good athlete. You know, he's 20 years younger than me. He's a better athlete than I am, although I think I can still beat him in a real sport like basketball. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm very confident in, in, in that. But, you know, I'm no comparison to him at soccer. But, true story, one time when we were playing soccer, I stole the ball from him. Really happened. See, even he's shaking his head. I mean, it, it was a point of shame for him. And he almost got kicked out of the country because it happened. But I, I stole the ball uh, from him one time. You say, if all this is true, if he's a better athlete than you, he's a better soccer player uh, th th than you, how could you steal the ball from him? Well, it happened something like he was kind of in the middle of the field and there were some defenders in front of him. So he kind of stopped and he's doing all this crazy dribbling stuff that he does. And he's kind of focused on the people in front of him, defending him, and me being the ninja pastor that I am, I, I snuck in behind him, and when he was focused on other things, when he was distracted, I stole the ball away from him. And I think that's kind of a picture of what Satan does with us. We get focused on other things, we get distracted, we let our guard down. I mean, really, in Christ, we're more powerful than him, but he can sneak in when we leave doors open and take things away from us. That's really, uh, to a large degree, what temptation is. And again, he's looking for opportune moments to do that. Look at what Luke 4.13 says. It says, now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until what? An opportune time. That's what he's looking. He's looking for opportune times in our lives. So this is a question that I think it would be wise for us to think through. What are our weak points that are opportune moments for Satan? What are our weak points that give him openings? 
I mean, Proverbs 22.3 says, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple or the foolish pass on and are punished. In other words, if we're going to be prudent, if we're going to be wise, we should kind of think ahead and think about ourselves and look at where we're weak, foresee evil, and, and, and run away with it. You know, the Bible says in Romans 13.14 to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So what are these opportune moments? Well, I think there's some that are common and, and some that are going to vary from person to person. So you got to think about it for yourself. You know, for me, before and after preaching, there's a lot of spiritual warfare, especially after preaching, kind of come down. Uh, you know, that, that's a time I have to be careful. Now, that's not most of you don't have to deal with that, but uh, you got stuff you got to deal with. But I think some of the common things, every man, I think, has to guard his eyes, guard his mind. When we're tired, that can be an opportune moment. Hungry, lonely, frustrated, disappointed, difficult circumstances, because in difficult circumstances, Satan can be whispering in your ear, see, God really doesn't love you. You're not really saved. I mean, if God loved you, things would be better. Just kind of like he's saying to Jesus, if you're, since you're really the son of God, why are you out here in the wilderness hungry? Just go ahead and turn this stone into bread. Sometimes after victories, you see this in Scripture. It's when we can be most susceptible to Satan's attacks. So what are those opportune moments? But also, Satan is a deceiver. Jesus said he's the father of lies. So I think a question, and you see this in this passage, so I think a question we have to answer is what lies are we prone to believe? What lies are we prone to believe? Um, Rick Warren says, behind every sin we commit, there's a lie that we believe. Behind every sin that we commit, there's a lie that we believe. When we think wrong, we feel wrong, and we act wrong. When we think truth, then usually we're going to feel right and we're going to act right. The battle is in our minds, which leads uh, to the fourth strategy here, which is exactly what Jesus did, that we reject Satan's lies with the truth of the Word of God. We reject Satan's lies with the truth of the word of God. Look at the passage, verse 3. What did the devil say to him? If you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. How did Jesus answer? He said, it is written. He quoted in all three of these cases from the book of Deuteronomy. He knew the word of God. Um, I mean, I said this in the second service. The second service is like packed. I mean, there's more people here than in this service. But I'd say if we put all three services together and we went around, I wonder how many verses collectively we could quote from the book of Deuteronomy. But Jesus knew it. He said, it, it, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes, uh, by, but by every word of God. And then in the next temptation, you know, the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says in verse 6, all this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me before me, all will be yours. And how did Jesus answer? He said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, quoting again from Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then in the third temptation in verse 9, they're in Jerusalem on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Then Satan says, for it is written. Now Satan's quoting scripture from the 91st Psalm. Out of context, he's saying he shall give his angels charge over to you to keep you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. How did Jesus answer? He said, it has been said, it has been written. Again, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, 
you know, I, I'm not going to tempt God by doing something outside of his will and forcing him to protect me since I'm uh, the Messiah. That was the essence of the temptation. But the point, again, in all of this, Satan's temptation it's deception, it's lies, and, and, and the way that Jesus countered it was with the truth of the Word of God. And so if the Son of God dealt with temptation by the Word of God, don't we probably need to do the same thing? But, you know, sometimes we struggle in life. You know, this Christian's like, and this Christian life thing isn't working out for me. I, you know, it just, I don't, I don't think it really works. Or, uh, but really, it's not working because we're not walking in the truth. I mean, we're facing this stuff in our own thoughts or what we hear from the world. Uh, we're not facing stuff in truth. I mean, we want the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. The Holy Spirit works through the truth of the, the Word of God. And, and so when we're tempted, if we don't know the Bible, if we've not read it, not studied it, not listened uh, to it taught and, and, and preached, then we're not going to have anything to fight these temptations with. We're just fighting on our own, and it is not going to go well for us. We're going to end up in bondage in, 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 instead of freedom then, because Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So one of the things I would encourage you to do is just if you're not in God's Word on a regular basis, download version, find some kind of Bible reading plan, start reading the Bible, listen to sermons, get in a small group where you can study the Bible together with other people and, and, and they can help you to understand it. Because, the, again, the battle's in our mind. And if we're not fighting it with truth, we're going to lose. We're going to end up in bondage instead of freedom. So, uh, Craig Rochelle's written a book called Winning the War in Your Mind. And when he, when he was teaching on this at his church, he told this story as an illustration that, that I think is just a perfect illustration for what I'm talking about in this point. So watch this video clip, if you would. And slammed under the door. 
So I think we all need to think about what kind of unlocked doors are we stuck behind in our lives because we're believing lies. Where do we need to replace lies, falsehood, with the truth of God's Word? And then the last thing that, that really kind of in a way goes along with the, the, the previous one. And, and this is really, I think, kind of the subtext of what Jesus is saying and quoting those verses. It's not really explicitly stated, but I think it's the implication of it, is that if we're going to overcome temptation, in part it comes from letting God change our desire, from gratifying our flesh to glorifying Him. If you notice, each of the verses that he quoted, they're very God-centered. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so, really what Jesus was doing here, I think, is He was basically saying, I'm not going to live to gratify me. I'm not going to live to do what I want to do. I'm not even going to meet a legitimate need uh, like getting hungry. No, I want to glorify my Father. He's my Father. I'm His Son. I know Him. I love Him. He knows me. He loves me. He approves uh, of me. And so I'm going to live to please and to honor and glorify Him because of how much He loves me. Remember, he had given this affirmation before he passed the test, not because he passed the test. Listen, we don't have to live our lives to earn God's love. We don't have to try to pass tests and do the right thing so God will love us. We can live for the glory of God because he does love us, and he's demonstrated that to us by sending his son. And Jesus proved the love of God for us on the cross. And so it's just a completely different way to live. You see, a lot of times uh, people in church, religious people think, well, you know, gotta, i got to white knuckle it to the end, try not to do this bad stuff. That's not biblical Christianity. The Bible teaches us that God, when we're born again, He regenerates us, He makes us alive, He gives us a new heart, and out of a new heart, we have new desires. And if we don't have new desires, we're not really saved, we're not really in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean our desires are always going to be right, there's still this battle between the Spirit and the flesh, but as we do what Jesus did, and we spend time with God, and we learn the Word of God, and we're filled with the Spirit of God, God will change our desires, where it's not just white-knuckling it until we die, but where we begin to want what God wants, knowing that His commandments are not burdensome and knowing that He's a good and a loving God who has what's best for us. You see, uh, the, the Bible tells us in James chapter 1 that each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We can't use the old Flip Wilson line and say, the devil made me do it. Listen, something is only tempting if uh, it's actually desirable to us. Want to overcome temptation? Let God change your desires. Um, simple analogy. 
let's just say I, I go to the doctor, and for whatever reason, the doctor says, if you want to live, you've got to eat a really strict, healthy diet. Let's say, okay, after that, somebody brings a plate of Doritos to me. That's no temptation to me at all, but because I think Doritos are disgusting instead of des desirable. Some of you look appalled at that statement, but that, that's, that's, it's not a temptation for me. But on the other hand, if someone brings uh, a plate of like M&M's and peanut M&M's and Snickers and Twix and Reese's to me, I, I may die at that point because it, it is desirable to me. And, and again, it's only, something's only a temptation if it's desirable to us. And like Billy Graham used to say, there's no virtue in resisting a temptation that's not actually a temptation to you. Because what we do sometimes is we judge other people for their temptations and we want everybody else to be patient with us for our failings. So, again, this isn't just white-knuckling it. It's knowing who we are in Christ and living out of that. It's being filled with the Spirit. It's being aware of these opportune moments and these lies. It's, it, it's knowing God's Word and living based on God's Word. It's living for the glory of God, living with new desires instead of just this old stuff. Uh, so let me just close by maybe trying to tie it together by illustrating it this way. You know, you can know all this stuff. Obviously, I know some stuff because I've been up here uh, talking for 35 minutes or so. Uh, but um, that doesn't mean that there's not opportune moments and temptations in my life and that kind of thing. So here's, here's an opportune moment for me. This is something that I despise is long car trips. Like if we're going over three or four hours, I'm like, just let's just fly. Because, uh, uh, you know, after several hours, I don't know what it is, but after several hours in a car, I just feel terrible. I just, like, just feel blah, and, you know, I just, just don't like it. Well, uh, Saturday before Thanksgiving, I took a car trip because our daughter Lily was coming, our youngest, was coming home from Sanford uh, for Thanksgiving break. But she'd been having some car trouble, and um, there was a mechanic down there that basically tried to take advantage of her. Charged her $180 to run diagnostics, gave her over a $2,000 estimate, and I'm just like, this is not legit. And talked to our mechanic that we use up here, if you need an honest mechanic at some point, I'll give you a name. And he said, you know, it's not legit, uh, but it's safe to drive. But I, just, uh, but I decided I wanted to drive it back instead of her driving it back. It cost $45 here, uh, by, by the way. Uh, but so, you know, she might be a little bit outside of Birmingham to cut some of the the, you know, the, the time off the trip for me. So I met her down there to drive her car back, and I'm like, you know, I, I don't really want to take this long trip, but I think it's the right thing to do. I want to, want to do this, look after her. Uh, and I'm like, you know, I've been super busy. It's crazy. It's kind of just be some time to decompress. You know, I can pray. I talked to one person who got baptized last Sunday, that kind of thing. And so the trip down went fine. You know, three hours and whatever, it's smooth. You know, I'm spending time with the Lord. It's good. And had a nice lunch with Lily. But I don't know about you, but it's amazing sometimes times how we can go from being spiritual uh, to getting in the flesh pretty quick. And so things kind of changed after lunch. You know, this is now getting into several hours of the trip, but it took way longer than I expected to think because we got stopped for a pretty good while in standstill traffic in Chattanooga. And then we tried to time it to come back through Knoxville while the UT Georgia game was going on, thinking it'd kind of be a ghost town, but still getting caught in traffic in West Knoxville. And it kind of ends up taking forever, and it's late in the day. 
And then at one point on the trip back, you know, I'm driving Lily's car, and, and she's driving Robin's car, but she notices that it looks like the front bumper is coming loose on her car. So we stop, and, um, and when, when we stop, I, you know, I'm looking at it, and I say, well, somebody's hit her like in a low speed in a parking lot or something and, and, and not said anything about it, and that's why our bumper's coming loose because you can see the scratches and that kind of thing lower down. Well, then while we're stopped, Robin's car door got scratched. And I just have to tell you, by this point, uh, I was not very spirit-filled. I was pretty much in the flesh. I was in a foul mood. And uh, so, uh, you know, my plan was that by the time we, you know, as we got back and we came through Jefferson City, I was going to stop at the community center and work out, have my gym bag with me, the whole thing. thought, you know, I'll feel better if I do this after car. But by this point, I'm in a bad mood, and it's like late in the day, and i got to think about, you know, getting up early on Sunday morning, that kind of thing. But I decided to stop, and I'm glad I did because I felt better physically. But while I was working out, I listened to a sermon by J.D. Greer. He's one of my, my favorite preachers. God really uses him to speak to me. And in, in listening to this sermon, he was actually preaching on the Matthew version of this passage. And I don't think it was one of his greatest sermons. I think there was something he said that's biblically true, but it really wasn't what the pastor was saying. I almost turned it off, but I'm glad I kept listening. Because by the time he got to the end, and he started talking about Jesus, and what Jesus won for us on the cross, and who we are in him, and how we stand in his grace, and how we're beloved uh, children of God, and just everything that we have in Christ, my attitude started changing. I started repenting of my attitude. I started focusing on Christ. And by the time I left there, I was happy when I got home. I was in a good mood. And I went home and enjoyed the evening with my family. I didn't go home and take my bad mood out on Robin. We had to have to repent before I came and preached the next day. And, you know, I was in a good frame of mind to come and preach the next morning. And what I'm saying is there, there are things that can be opportune moments. There are things that we can struggle with. And I didn't completely handle that fully in the way that I should. But at some point, are we going to let it spiral? Are we going to turn back to Jesus, fix our eyes back on him, close those doors so Satan can't keep coming and stealing the balls from us, fix our eyes on truth, be filled with the Spirit, remember that Jesus won the victory, and live out of that, knowing that he's gracious, he's patient, he's forgiving, and he'll give us what we need to overcome the things that we face. Let's, let's pray. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. After that, we're going to sing. I just want to encourage you this morning to respond to the Lord. If you're a Christian, there's something you need to repent of. Ask Him to forgive you. Maybe you need to make a commitment to be in His Word. Maybe you need to meditate on who you are in Christ. Maybe you need to think about just ways you're opening the door, lies that you're believing an identity that you're trying to achieve instead of living out of who you are in Christ. I encourage you to pray. Let the Lord speak to you. Let Him minister to you this morning. Listen, if you're not a Christian, not something you can earn, it's not something that you have to earn. Jesus has already earned it for you. He paid for all your sins. And if you'll come to the place where you'll humble yourself and surrender to Him and trust Him. Trust Him as your Savior. Confess Him as your Lord. Give Him your life. He'll forgive you and He'll make you new. So,
As we sing, I encourage you to worship. If you need to pray, pray where you are, come here. If you need to talk about becoming a Christian or anything else, I'll be here at the front and be happy to spend some time with you during or after the service. Jesus, we thank you that you are a triumphant Savior, that you won the victory. Lord, help us to live out of that victory. God, forgive us for our sins and all the ways that we fall short. Lord, I pray that you fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your truth. Remind us of who we are in you. And we thank you that by grace through the cross, we are your beloved sons and daughters. Lord, help us to live to glorify you and not ourselves. Make us who you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.